0: Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, submitting to authorities, let's jump right into the text. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebel, rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be, fear, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This passage of scripture is difficult to embrace wholeheartedly and obey fully, even in the best of times. Even when we are under the rule of a good and benevolent governing authority. The passage becomes even more difficult to see as an expression of love. That's the topic that we were looking at, that topic that Paul is emphasizing in Romans 12 even and all before. It becomes even more difficult to see this passage as an expression of love or of right Christian behavior when all these governments, when so many, several governing authorities around the world are acting in entirely ungodly and destructive ways. So how do we make sense of this passage? It's important to note that when Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, there were two main groups of governing authorities that his readers would have been familiar with, the Romans and the Jewish leaders. There were no Christian authorities. There was nobody who was a born-again Christian that was in a position of authority or influence that could have done anything for them. So he's writing this passage in the context of two groups of people, both Roman and Jewish leaders, who were hostile to Christians and to the church. But if Christians were to disobey these authorities or take up arms against them, as the zealots were starting to do against the Romans it would have led to anarchy, violence, and bloodshed. So the first point that I want to make to you is this, or the context that I want to set is this. Paul is writing specifically for the believers to avoid extreme situations or extreme positions. He's saying to them, don't disobey the authorities entirely, or, and... Don't try to destroy the authorities entirely. Don't try to disobey them entirely and don't try to destroy them entirely. But he's not saying that no matter what, every believer must obey every governing authority without question in every matter. He's not saying that. And here's why that's the case. Governing authorities may not act according to the will of God. It seems like a no-brainer to say that, but it has to be stated so that we get it clear in the context of what Paul is saying. He is not saying that every governing authority is acting according to the will of God. right? Although God is sovereign over all, including the appointment of those in authority, it does not mean that every authority or that everyone in authority is always acting according to the will of God. It is God that entrusts them with a measure of authority. He gives these human leaders a measure of authority. But those appointed by God, those sovereignly known by God, may never obey or even acknowledge God. And in the book of Daniel, we have an account of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He's a pagan king who is not a worshipper of Yahweh. And it provides, that account there provides a good example of both God's sovereignty and the king's Self-centeredness. And in Daniel chapter 4, we read that the king had a dream. And here's what he says. This is the words of the king himself. He says, In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is King Nebuchadnezzar relating what he is receiving in this vision, in this dream. Twelve months later, it happens exactly as the king saw. Exactly what what, what God said would happen. He lost his mind, he was driven out of the city, he lived like an animal for seven years. And after seven years, here's the record of what happened, again in the king's own words. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever." His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. King Nebuchadnezzar came to an understanding of God and his sovereign rule. But he came to that understanding only after some very painful lessons. In fact, in Daniel chapter 3, before he had this dream, before he was humbled and then restored by God, we read how this king raised a golden idol for self-glorification. He did not act according to the will of God or glorify God until there was a radical intervention in his life. When King Nebuchadnezzar made the golden idol and commanded all the people to worship it or be thrown into a blazing furnace, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, I've mentioned that the Jewish leaders were not governing according to the will of God. When the church was first forming, we read this in Acts 2, that Peter and John were questioned by the Jewish leaders and commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Governing authorities giving us very, very direct command. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The Jewish leaders, self-professed followers of God and those upholding the law of God, did not glorify God according to the will of God. And so, similarly with the Roman leaders, when Stephen and other martyrs after him refused to disown the Lord Jesus at the command, at the specific command of the governing authorities, the Roman and Jewish authorities, they ended up losing their lives. And so these are examples, these are stories of people who were not submitting to the, the authorities, the governing authorities, because these governing authorities were not working or moving or doing things according to the will of God. And in each one of these cases, and others like it, that you know, like, like this in the word of God, it is very clear that a child of God could not submit and obey those authorities. The lesson for us, though, the important lesson for us is that there must be a discerning of God's will before submitting to any authority. Our first responsibility is to first submit to God, and then all subsequent submission must align with that submission to God. That's what Paul is having as a context. He's not just saying, do whatever, obey anybody. He's saying, he doesn't say this explicitly in this passage, but he's essentially saying, submit to God. Once you have submitted to God, and you are in alignment with his will, then submit to governing authorities appropriately. So, as we discern what God's will is, and then we are using that discernment, that knowledge of God's will, that wisdom from God, to evaluate what is being required of us by governing authorities, we sometimes find that governing authorities may act according to God's will even if they're not godly. There will be governing authorities who are not godly. They're not acknowledging God. They're not saying things. But they act according to God's will. They have done something that is consistent with God's will. And so even as Paul writes to the Romans to avoid the extremes, don't try to disobey them entirely, don't try to destroy them entirely, he does clearly state to obey governing authorities, albeit in accord with God's will. Why? Because, in general, God has sovereignly established authorities at every level for the good of those who do right and the punishment of those who do wrong. God has put that in place. God, who is a God of order and authority, allows for the establishment of order and authority for the protection and provision of human beings. Again, it is very possible, and we see this all over the world, governing authorities can abuse their power and position to hurt and deprive human beings. But governing authorities may also act for the benefit and well-being of the people, in line with God's will, even though they don't know it. And so, when governing authorities do the right thing, there can be peace and prosperity. When governing authorities don't do the right thing, they may need to be opposed. In the biblical example of governing authorities, not acting according to the will of God, the resulting action by the children of God was to not submit to them. To oppose them. Last week we saw that we are to bless those who persecute us. We are to overcome evil with good. And as far as possible, to live at peace with everyone. So you take those statements and you take this statement and you consider the point that I'm making here and you say, how does this all work? Because as we saw last week, the as far as is not according to our desires, conveniences, or preferences. The as far as is according to God's command. As far as God's will, as far as God's command, as far as God's leading We live at peace with all people. And so we have to understand that there may be situations where God directs us to oppose governing authorities. In a democratic country with due process of law and democratic processes that are in place, the opposition to what is going on may be expressed by how we vote. In an authoritarian dictatorship or repressive state rule or other violent and destructive environment, the opposition may be to flee, to not stay and submit to the authorities. That in itself is an opposition, to flee. It may be to engage in nonviolent protest or possibly to resist with force. when uh, considering whether or how to submit to governing authorities, in the past you could look at Babylonians or Persians or Romans as repressive regimes. But ever since World War II, and Tammy made a reference to this when she was sharing, ever since World War II, that consideration of how to submit to governing authorities, that discussion includes Hitler and the Nazis in Germany. We can't or don't want to imagine that any governing authority could be so brutal, so destructive, and so explicitly anti-Semitic. And as the Nazis inflicted their murderous rule across Europe and other parts of the world, there were many who opposed them politically, many who fled, many like Corrie ten Boom who hid Jewish people from the Nazis, and many who took up arms against them. Almost all of them died. Almost all of them were put to death. But in the middle of all of those things, and the things that they were doing, they were standing by this conviction that they needed to oppose what was happening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian who wrote quite powerfully about Christianity's role in the world. And Here are just a few of the quotes that are attributed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. Then He said, God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in their opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, this is for God the ground of unfathomable love. Judging others makes us blind. Whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we bind ourselves to our own, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace with which others are just as entitled to as we are. The church is the church only when it exists for others. Not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. The community of the saints, the church, is not an ideal community consisting of perfect and sinless men and women, where there is no need for further repentance. No, it is a community which proves that it is worthy of the gospel of forgiveness by constantly and sincerely proclaiming God's forgiveness. And this last quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this set of quotes, he said, one act of obedience is worth a hundred sermons. I think he was talking to me. He was talking to preachers, talking to people who stand up in pulpits, right? One act of obedience is worth a hundred sermons. Bonhoeffer lived in Germany from 1906 to 1945. And I read these quotes to you to make the point that Bonhoeffer was a sincere Christian who was striving to live out the gospel, to love God and love others, and to submit to governing authorities. He wasn't doing anything else. He was trying to live out the word of God. The Nazi party, with Hitler as its leader, came into power in 1933, when Bonhoeffer was just 27 years old. From the very beginning of Nazi governance, Bonhoeffer publicly opposed the party and the regime. And he said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And he didn't just oppose it verbally. He didn't just oppose it from the pulpit. He didn't just write articles and so on. He didn't just stop there. Bonhoeffer, pastor, theologian, a fervent Christian praying, seeking the Lord, he joined a group that attempted to assassinate Hitler. Their plot failed. He was arrested, put on trial, imprisoned, and finally put to death at age 39 at the very end of World War II. In Romans chapter 13, verse 5, Paul wrote, It is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. When Bonhoeffer was imprisoned, he didn't justify his actions, but instead he said, I have done something here that seems like it's a violation. There is a guilt associated with this, that I have gone against the governing authorities. But he wrote this about his act of rebellion. He said, when a man takes guilt upon himself in responsibility, he imputes his guilt to himself and no one else. He answers for it. Before other men, he is justified by dire necessity. Before himself, he is acquitted by his conscience. But before God, he hopes only for grace. Both Paul and Bonhoeffer appealed to having a clear conscience, even though they were describing completely different actions. One is saying submit to governing authorities, the other is saying I'm willing to take up arms to fight against this oppressor. But both of them said, I am acquitted, I am clear, I know where I stand before God and His grace, my conscience is clear. What's the lesson for us? The Bible is not telling us that we must always submit without question. And the Bible is not telling us that we must always oppose the oppressor. Whether we're submitting to or opposing governing authorities, the biblical example is for us to obey God with a clear conscience. Your responsibility is to stand before God and to say, I know that what I have done is according to what the Lord wanted me to do. And it will vary for each person. One person may go do something that is quite sacrificial. Another may not have that opportunity or may not be able to do that. But in God's sight, we have that joint responsibility to say, is my conscience clear? have I done what the Lord has asked me to do? Have I been faithful? Then it does not matter what others would say of me. How come you're not doing more? How come you did this? How come you didn't do that? You would say before God, I stand with a clear conscience. Amen. Amen. So, here's the thing. We must evaluate every governing authority and every situation in light of God's word, His truth. We must be discerning. We must obey God. We must take appropriate action. And here's the thing. When governing authorities provide the environment for us to live godly lives, when they actually do, do when they when they do perform according to the will of God or support or are in alignment with the will of God, when governing authorities provide an environment that is conducive for us to live in peace, we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by Paying taxes, revenue, respect, and honor to governing authorities. Isn't that what you wanted to hear? Pay taxes. (laughs) April 15th is coming up quickly. (laughs) Pay taxes. Why do I say this? Because Romans chapter 13, verse 6 to 7 that we read says, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their time, full time, to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. It is very reminiscent of Jesus' response when he was questioned about paying taxes. When they tried to trap him by asking about submitting to Caesar's authority, Jesus said, give back to Caesar or... Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God what is God's. We've unpacked that before. There's a whole lot more to say about it. But we give what is due to governing authorities. Because the word of God tells us in Titus chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 it says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness this is good and pleases God our savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth we desire to live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness that means that we are appropriately engaged in government and in society we don't withdraw from the world We are in the world, appropriately engaged, doing that which the Lord leads us to do, so that we can live peacefully and quietly. And in living peacefully and quietly, our main intent is that we may share the truth of God that brings people to God and to salvation. We're not saying, Lord, give us wonderful governing authorities, low taxes, you know, low interest rates, all the, the favor that we need, individual rights, so that I can consume all this stuff on myself, so that I can live in luxury, so that I can enjoy my life, so that I can do all these things. No. We're saying, God, we are praying for governing authorities. We're praying that we may live in peace. We're praying that we would do this so that... We would live godly and holy lives and be able to share with others the gospel message, the truth of God, and see them come to you. What if we don't have that privilege? What if we don't have the opportunity to live a peaceful and quiet life? What if you're running all, your, all the time, hiding, you know, trying to just protect yourself and your family? Well, so many people around the world are doing just that. And in the middle of that circumstance, they are still sharing the truth of God's word. They're willing to give up their lives. They're willing to sacrifice it all and to say, Lord God, whether by death or by life, whether in peace or in trouble, whether hostility or favor from governing authorities, I'll make your truth known. I will tell people who you are. I will tell them that they can come to you. And because of that, Because of that, the church, the body of Christ around the world, and especially in these countries and places where there is so much opposition, the body of Christ grows. The kingdom of God advances. The purposes of God are fulfilled. And the will of God is done. Oh, we live as responsible citizens as we live in peace We do all that we can for those who are unable to live in peace. When we go to some place, or we do something else, or we raise funds, or we help out, we're saying, we have been able to live in peace. We have been given this opportunity. We want to help those that are unable to live in peace. We want to reach out to them. We want to be kind. We want to be compassionate. We want to be led of the Lord. Ultimately, ultimately, after all of those things may be there, we must turn to the Lord in prayer. That has to be what undergirds all of this action. That has to be what motivates us first, through, and, f- and at the end. That we pray. That we say to the Lord, Lord, I want to pray for those in authority. I pray, I want to pray for all that is going on all over the world. I want to pray for deliverance and healing. When we come together on Wednesday nights, we say, God, we want to pray for these global topics things that are going on around the world. We want to join with one voice and to say, Lord God, we call out to you. Unless you move, unless there is peace and quiet for these people, they cannot even live. But Lord, we call out to you. And we ask you, Lord, to come and to have your way. Show mercy where there is great turmoil right now. Show kindness where your judgment has been extended. Lord, bring peace, and we call out to the Lord. But that prayer for that kind of work of God comes from repentance, comes from humility, comes from submission, comes from compassion, comes from discernment, comes from obedience, and it comes from the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds and being the umpire of our prayer for peace. We don't pray for peace according to our thinking. We pray for peace according to the peace of God. We pray for peace according to the Prince of Peace. We pray for peace because of our relationship with Jesus. And then we say, Lord God, because of who you are, because of what you have done, because you came running after us, and you gave your life, even for these folks that are the worst oppressors, Lord God, let that peace of God, let that truth of God, so guard my heart and mind, that I would pray, that I would act according to your will. Oh, What if the church was moving in that way all over the world? What if the church, the body of Christ was moving like that all over the world? Would there be a difference? I think so. Isn't that the church that the Lord is preparing and awaiting and making ready so that when he returns he will draw to himself a bride without spot or blemish? A bride that will stand before him and say, I have a clear conscience. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. Oh, Lord God, when we see all these things around us, Lord, it is difficult. And we read these passages and we say, Oh, Lord God, how is this even possible? How can we do this? It is difficult. But I thank you, Lord, that your call to us is not to do something that is easy or convenient. It is to do the hard things. It is to depend on you. It is to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. It is to welcome you and to say, Lord, you come. You come and you do this work in us first and all over this world that the body of Christ may be built up in strength. That the body of Christ, members of one body who show the love of God, would because of that love because of that sacrifice, because of that prayer, would draw others to you. Jesus, we need that. Jesus, we need that. We need it desperately. We need you to, Lord, come and change us, to set us afresh, to set us anew in your path. Lord, to pay attention to what you are doing, to call out with care, with compassion, with love, and to say, Lord God, Help us to submit in every area. Help us, Lord, to submit. Lord, help us to understand what that means. Help us to pay attention. Help us to pray for that. Help us to do what you alone can lead and guide and direct us to do. So that, Lord, your will is done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.